appreciate it, man. Uh, good morning, Mercy Fellowship. Hope you're well this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Curtis. I serve on the leadership team here at the church and honored to be bringing God's word to you this morning. Uh, our pastor, Pastor Chris and his wife, Tara, and the kids, they're gone this week. And uh, actually, Pastor Chris and his wife, Tara, they're going to be on a, a retreat with Acts 29. So some other pastors, uh, be praying for them. This is a time of rejuvenating uh, for them. And so it'll be a great time for them. Pray that they'd have a great time and they'd come back with uh, renewed energy to continue on the mission. Um, we've been in a series in 2 Corinthians here at the church, and, and we're actually going to pause this week, and I'm going to actually go uh, speak to you guys today through the book of James. And so if you have a Bible, you can open to James chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verses 12. And when uh, Pastor Chris gets back, he'll finish the series in 2 Corinthians next week. But I want to start with this. I've been a Christian now for upwards of 11 years. I know some of you older saints, you've been Christians longer than I've been alive. I'm, I'm 28 years old. And uh, as the, when I first became a Christian, as many of you are probably did when you first became Christians, you look for examples to follow in the faith. You look for people and you want to see like, hey, what does a successful Christian look like? And I remember I would see a few men that just had booming ministries. Uh, they just had pews full of people. People were getting baptized. They had book deals. Uh, people's lives were being changed. It seemed like that was a successful Christian. I saw that and I was like, yeah, that's what I want. That's a successful Christian life. And then yet, as years go on, sadly, these men just absolutely decimate their ministries due to faithlessness. Faithlessness either to God or, or faithlessness to their spouse. I think even throughout high school and college, these people that you would see, that they just seemed like they were red hot for the glory of God, and they had spines of steel, if you will, for uh, talking about Jesus to other people and wanting people to know Christ. And as the years go on, just one after another after another falls to faithlessness. And so we're going to be talking about faithfulness to God today, and that's a large part of what James talks about to these people that he's addressing in his letter. And I just want to give you some, some backstory for who James is and who he is addressing. James, he is the, the half-brother of Jesus. He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God until post-resurrection. And it was at that time James becomes actually a fairly high figure within church. He has a big church in Jerusalem. He has a big voice within the church and what it practices and does. The Apostle Paul, actually, he talks about meeting with Peter, James, and John. And those are the three pillars, if you were, will, of the church at that time. And James, he says that he is addressing the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's who this letter is addressed to. These people, they are not on full persecution yet, but they are suffering from various trials. They're losing jobs. They're losing status. They're, they're losing money. As the cost for following Jesus is going up and up and up, they are losing more and more and more. And eventually it will come to full-on persecution. And James, he does an amazing thing. He refers to them as the 12 tribes of the dispersion. If you know anything about the meta-narrative of the Bible, meaning the overarching story of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you'll know that the number 12 is pretty significant. You go to the book of Genesis and you see the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob, he'll have 12 sons. And those 12 sons, they inevitably become the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, they, these are the people of God. You fast forward a few thousand years and we look at Jesus 
The Son of God, second member of the Trinity, comes down to earth, born of a virgin, and begins his ministry at 30. And when he begins his ministry, he gathers 12 apostles. That is to say, the people of God are no longer to be identified with a nation, but now the people of God are to be identified by the devotion and following of Jesus. And James, he's a good pastor. He's a loving and caring pastor. He addresses these people and who are going through trials, and he calls them the twelve tribes of the dispersion. He helps remind them of their identity. Now, this is so significant, right? You know this. When we face trials, when we face suffering, or when we face pain, we can often become disoriented. We can begin to question, man, who are we? Who am I? I, I thought I was part of the people of God, but maybe I'm not actually part of the people of God. I, I thought God was close to me. I thought God was near, but perhaps God is not near. James, he's reminding them, no, even though you are going through these things, God is near. And you are, in fact, the people of God. And so if we miss this church, we'll, we'll misread all of the book of James. Uh, James, he, he's going to tell them a lot about what to do, how to act. And if we miss this point, we can start off by saying, okay, I'm going to do things. I'm going to act this way so that I can become the people of God. Rather, it's the complete opposite. It is already because they are the people of God that they are going to act and live in such a way. Uh, you could think about it like this. They are not working for an identity, but they are working from their identity that's been given to them by God. So a lot of foundational work we had to do, but we're going to go ahead and look at James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I'll read the whole thing and then we'll break it down. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Uh, how many of you this morning were or are athletic? Show of hands. I just want to see how many of you were or are athletic. Okay, some of you, some of you, some of you are like, nah, not really, not really athletic. Okay, so either in college or high school or even currently do softball or baseball, football, soccer, uh, not golf. That's a leisurely activity. All right, just so we're clear. All right, uh, I played team sports growing up. The thing that really captured my attention and, de and uh, devotion uh, was skateboarding. I loved skateboarding. I was actually pretty good at skateboarding. Uh, falling on concrete at 28, though, hurts a lot more than it does at 18, so I've, I've since pulled back a little bit. But with all sports, whether it's team sports or whether it's individual sports, I know this to be true, right? Uh, there's a lot of trial and error as you're trying to perfect, perfect your craft, right? There is a lot of making mistakes. There's a lot of failing and not succeeding as you're trying to go ahead and perfect your craft. In fact, I remember on more than one occasion falling and hitting the concrete so hard and I'd get up just being disoriented about what had happened. Uh, I think the technical term for that's a concussion, but we'll, we'll table that for another time. 
The analogy James uses here, though, is this. It's very subtle, but he's using the analogy of an athletic person. He's using the analogy of one who would run a race in the Roman games of their day. This person who would run this race, they would receive a crown. And this crown was made of laurel leaves. So you know this, church. Uh, if you've seen Greek sculptures at all, you've seen these Greek sculptures of people who have been victorious in battle. Or perhaps they're high society figures. And they're often, the sculptures are made of them and they're wearing a crown of laurel leaves. So James, he gives us this analogy. The one who is to receive the crown of life is the one who remains steadfast under trial. This crown of life, church, this is life with God itself. This is the thing that we strive for more than anything. In fact, this analogy of, of crowns and, and running a race is used in much of the New Testament. The book right after James is the book of First Peter. And Peter, he tells the, uh, the people that he's addressing, hey, hey, strive to receive the, the unfading crown of glory. That is to say, there's crowns that you'll get in this life for being successful, but the reality is they're fading crowns. There's one unfading crown that we should strive for, and that's the, the crown of life. This man or woman of God that passes the test of faithfulness to God in this life is deemed blessed, deemed happy. Uh, so what James is doing in this first verse, he's giving us the long game for the Christian life. Point A, you've trusted in Jesus. Point Z is one day when you will receive the crown of life. And a question we need to ask as we're in the in-between currently is this. How do we make it to the end? How do we make it to the end? I'm, I'm certain of this, church. My story that I shared this morning is probably not too unfamiliar with your own story, where you've had friends and family members that have fallen away from the faith, where you've had pastors and people that you've looked up to that have fallen away from the faith. How do we make it to the end? How are we going to be faithful in this life to Jesus despite whatever trials and sufferings we may face? Well, the answer that James gives us is this. Our faith needs to be tested. Our faith needs to be tested. Not that it should be tested. Not that it's a, it's a good idea, like a little supplemental pill that it would be tested. No, no, our faith needs to be tested to see how genuine it is towards Jesus. Uh, James, he says this in uh, verses 2 and 3. I don't know if it will be up on the screen or not. Just a couple of verses previous to what we're reading. He says, count it all joy my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. Did you hear that? Your faith being tested, it produces within you steadfastness. Another way we can look at that word steadfastness is remaining, enduring, dwelling, all with the overarching idea of faithfulness. That's the idea. Uh, a biosphere was created by the University of Arizona in 2011. It's called Biosphere 2. I think Biosphere 1 was created by someone else. But it's created out actually in the desert in Arizona. And so it's this three acres of a glass dome. And what they've done is that they tr tried to create the perfect living environment for, for all of life. So for humans and for trees and for vegetation. So what they did is they, they created this, this dome, you will, this enclosed dome. And uh, everything seemed to go well. Their trees were growing and, and humans were doing fine. Fruits and vegetables were doing okay. But they had an issue that kept coming up. The trees were weak. Uh, they would get to a certain height and then they'd topple over. 
And so scientists, they did their research to try to find out what was going on. And the conclusion was this, that trees need wind. Uh, trees need to have wind blow against them. And this causes the roots to, to not only grow deeper into the ground, but to grab harder. And it allows them the ability to grow taller. And I can't think of a, a better analogy for us than our faith needing to be tested. Our faith needs to face trials and suffering. We need the winds of, faith, of trials and suffering, church, so that our roots in Christ, they, they might grow deep, so that we might be faithful to Jesus and his bride to the very end. Some of you, you might be asking this morning, Chris, are you really saying this, that my faith needs to be tried, that I need to go through some pain and suffering in this life? Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. Amen. Thank you so much for that. You know, you look at people within church, uh, the Bible, and man, the, the way that suffering is used in the life to develop a Christian is so counterintuitive to the world. You look at someone like Joseph, right? Joseph, at the end of Genesis, he goes through this season where he's sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. Uh, he's thrown into prison once he gets into Egypt because he won't sleep with his boss's wife. Uh, he has a life full of suffering, full of pain, full of loss. And once he actually starts to build up his reputation in Egypt and he gets a spot high in society, he's able to help all of Israel through a hard famine that's going on in their land. And when he reveals himself to his brothers at the very end of it, they, they repent and they're sorry. And Joseph says, hey, what you had intended for evil in my life, God meant for good. You think of someone like Job, right? Job, another man who was tested greatly by God. Job, he, he lost everything. He lost all his children. He lost all of his livestock. His, his wife remained alive, which was worse for him than it was, than it was good. His wife. His wife ridiculed him for his faith in God and tells him to curse God and die. The ray of sunshine, right? Absolute ray of sunshine. Job's friends, they show up later in his life and they say, well, Job, clearly you're suffering. Because I lose my mic. Oh, there we go. Yeah, Job's friends show up and they say, clearly you're suffering because you have some hidden sins that are in your life. Tell us, Job, what are they? For 20 chapters, they are accusing Job. It's exhaustive to read it. And it's at the end of Job's life, as he's processing this and he's crying out to God, that God begins to reveal his nature to Job. And Job says at the end of that book, he said, God, my, ear, uh, God, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. And here's the reality for all of us this morning. Trials, they are meant to produce a refining of our faith. Trials, they are meant to produce a greater dependence on God and a greater clarity of who he is and his ways. If that's the result of trials that we face, church, that's a win. Would you give me that? That's a win. Our faith needs to be tested. And so, how are we going to be faithful to the end? James, he says this, God has promised this crown to those who love him. It's really interesting. It's another another antidote, if you will, for having a faithful Christian life. Our heart's disposition to God must be one of love. Our heart's disposition to God can't be one of duty, where we just show up week in, week out, and we serve week in, week out, and we do our job week in, week out, and our hearts are just utterly void of love towards God. Consequently, though, on the other side, it can't just be carelessness. It can't just be, well, I don't really care to serve. I don't really care to give. I don't really care to show up. And they kind of believe the lie. Yeah, we all just end up in the same place anyways. 
No, no. If we're going to be faithful to the end to receive this crown of life, our heart's disposition to God must be one of love. And so, church, we have trusted in Jesus. Some of you have, some of you haven't. I hope and pray that you do. And we're all one day striving to receive that crown of life. But we find ourselves currently in the in-between, what theologians call the, the already but not yet. And when we're faced with trials and when we're faced with suffering, we're met at a crossroads. The crossroads could be either faithfulness to God in hard seasons or faithlessness to God. Uh, It could be to endure these hard seasons or to evacuate and hopefully have an easier life on the other side. And we'll see how James addresses this in verses 13 through 15. James, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. An interesting thing about these verses that we're reading is the word testing and tempting, they're actually the same word in Greek. Uh, but because of their context, they are labeled differently. And so I'm just going to list off three ways of which testing and tempting are, are different in, in hopes of helping to clarify what we're going to be reading for the next couple of verses. Testing is used by God to strengthen one's faith, while tempting is used for, for evil. Testing, it, it builds you up in your faith, while tempting is meant to make shipwreck of your faith. Testing is meant to to build your character, while tempting is used to destroy your character. If you want to think about it in these terms, testing is meant to send you heavenward towards God, and tempting is meant to send you towards the grave. And this goes back to who James is addressing. People that are facing trials of various kinds. Losing jobs, losing social status, losing money, and they're asking their pastor, Pastor James, how, how do we move forward in life? And you know this, right? You know this. When, when times are hard, it is so much easier just to say, hey, I'm done. I don't want to endure anymore. I, I'm, I'm done persevering through this. There's no fruit that's coming from it. I'm done. It's so much easier to wave the white flag of surrender than it is to walk through the valley in the shadow of death. And yet, church, we talked about this. If our heart's disposition to God is one of love, then we desire faithfulness, not faithlessness. And James, he points out that the person who is faithless is the one who blames everyone else for what's going on in their life except themselves. We have a saying within biblical counseling that's a phrase that's been helpful, and it's influenced yet responsible. And here's the idea behind it. It's not an insensitive statement. The idea behind it is this. Everyone has been sinned against. Some to greater degrees than others, certainly. I will totally acknowledge that. Also, we've all sinned against someone. We are all not only victims, but we are all guilty of making people victims. And how you move forward in life, that falls upon your shoulders. One day you will meet Jesus and he will ask you about your life. And it's, it's not about how, what you, how other people had treated you, but it's about what you had done to move forward in life. It's really interesting what James does here. He puts an incredible amount of responsibility for our own actions on our own shoulders. The, the man that he's talking about, he's saying, well, well, God's tempting me. If you want to translate it differently, well, God's tempting me to sin. 
God's tempting me to be faithless. That's an absurd thing to say. Absolutely absurd. And then, okay, well, let's go down the list. If not God, then, then maybe Satan's responsible. All right, is Satan responsible for tempting God's people? Certainly. God, uh, Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and we're no better than Jesus. So yeah, certainly we'll be tempted by Satan. You'll notice in these verses we read, though, Satan's not even mentioned. James is saying, no, God doesn't tempt with evil. He himself tempts no one. No, it's not Satan. He speaks slow, solely to the individual. Verse 14, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Something that's inside of you. Tempted and lured by his own desires. This analogy of luring and enticing is a fishing analogy. And, and I'll confess to you this morning, Mercy Fellowship, I've never caught a fish in my life, so I'll do my best with this analogy. I tried fishing once when I was seven with my dad and grandpa on the boat, and I'm an impatient person, so I, I threw the fishing pole in the water. And then uh, just actually about a month or so ago, I went fishing with two guys from our church, Jared Schwartz and Ben Delgado, and both of them are not here. That really is disappointing. But I went fishing with them, and they said, don't worry, Curtis, we'll get you to catch a fish. And uh, they both caught fish, and I didn't catch any. So God's way of telling me not to waste my time fishing. Uh, if you know fishing, though, or you don't know fishing, the analogy is this. You have your fishing line, and on the end of it, you have a hook. And on that hook, you put some sort of bait. And so the idea is this, then. When you throw your line into the water and your hook sinks down, you'll have something that's on your hook to, to lure the fish your way, something to draw its appetite towards you. Hopefully, you'll, you'll catch the fish, and you'll eventually kill it. And the same analogy is used for us. When we're facing trials and they're difficult, we begin to have a desire for a way out. We begin to have an appetite. Things that are attractive, they begin to, to lure us away from faithfulness to God to, towards faithlessness. I think a question that's worth considering if we're going to be honest people and people that actually want to follow Jesus is this. What lures you away from God when hard times come upon your life? What lures you away from God when hard times come upon your life? We're individual people here, right? I, I have my own tendencies when times get hard to not run towards God, but to run towards other things. What do you have? What are those things that, you dr that draw you away from God when you're facing trials of various kinds? Perhaps for the people in James' day, the, the, the thing that would have lured them is that they would have received everything back they lost. Hey, if you want your job back, you need to stop saying Jesus is the way and start saying Jesus is a way. All right, it's going to make you get along a lot better with your coworkers. Hey, I know that you say Jesus is Lord, but it's really bad for our campaign and bad for you as a person in society to say that. Right, we're going to need you to say Caesar is Lord. You can say Jesus is Lord in private. Don't worry about that. But saying Caesar is Lord in public is really going to help all of us. The natural outworkings of faithlessness is verse 15. We see those again. It says, then desire when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. This is what I'll call the counterfeit born again experience. Rather than you trusting in Jesus and what he desires for your life, you trust in your own desires and what you desire for your life. And the result of that is not righteousness and a right standing with God, but the result of that is sin, which is alienation from God. 
Then sin, as it, as it grows and cultivates in your being, the result of sin that is fully grown is not eternal life with God, but is eternal death with God. You need to hear me this morning, Mercy Fellowship. Some of you, you've come in and you don't trust Jesus. I've just described your life. I've just described where you are going, where, where in your being you believe what God desires for your life to be fallible, but you believe what you desire for your life to be infallible. Where you question everything God desires for your life, seeing whether it's good or bad, and yet you never question what you desire for your own life to see whether it's good or bad. I'll tell you what, church, my, my generation of millennials and that beneath me of Gen Zers, we have this insatiable appetite for pursuing whatever we desire, and yet we never stop to ask the question, is what I desire good? If we look throughout history, we know this is nothing new. Um, if you want to give it a name, it is, in fact, hedonism. Hedonism, it is the pursuit of all pleasures, and that by maximizing pleasures, we would therefore minimize suffering in this world. And so the idea is this, whatever you desire, nothing's held back, go after it. You know, there's tribes in Africa that, that really enjoy and desire cannibalism, so I don't know how well that uh, produces, uh, you know, uh, less suffering in the world. The idea, the idea is this. Once you pursue all you desire, and once you get it, then you're fulfilled. Then all is well. And yet we know that's not true from history. And yet we know time and time again of people who have professed to be hedonists. It, it doesn't work. Uh, they have not gone to a fountain and found that it has been refreshing and satisfied their soul. Uh, they have been drinking salt water and have been more thirsty afterwards than when they first began. It doesn't work. I think of someone I really respect throughout church history. His name is St. Augustine. Now, I've quoted him before many times, and I've said the same quote before, but he was a hedonist. He was a man who devoted his life to whatever he desired. And writing about his hedonism, he says, God, I could not hear you because of the clanging of my chains that imprisoned me. And we have this idea in our society, right? Well, if you, if you pursue what you desire, it's so freeing, it's so liberating, isn't it? Augustine said, I couldn't hear God because of how enslaved I was by my hedonism. And it wasn't until he, he repented of his sin and he trusted in Jesus that he writes those famous, that famous book, Confessions. And in it writes one of those most famous lines saying, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. And so I want to say this for us, church. For us in Washington State, there, there's no benefit to following Jesus, Right? There's no benefit to following Jesus. It might be a little positive or a little negative, depending on where you live or where you work. Um, but for us here in Washington State, there's no social benefit for us to be following Jesus. And I'm certainly not saying that persecution is coming our way. That gets thrown around way too easy, so I'm not saying that. I do believe the cost of following Jesus is going to get greater as time goes on, not less. And here's my hope for us as a church and as a, as a group of Christians that we wouldn't compromise our beliefs for our own desires. That we wouldn't compromise what's true and what's right for what we desire, but rather we would pursue what God desires for our life, whatever the cost might be. Uh, let's weigh this option, right? What is the loss for following Jesus? Loss of social status, loss of friends groups, loss of, loss of family members perhaps, or being part of a family. What's gained? A crown of life. Uh, life with God himself. 
Uh, we used to sing uh, this song at church called Relent. It was by a band called Citizens, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. And the chorus was just beautiful lyrics. I've been meditating on them for the last couple of years. I think they're just absolutely beautiful. And the, the chorus goes, I relent. There's nothing for me here. You can have it all. This life is not my own. And then this line right here, they say, you give life that's worth the loss of mine. And that's the idea, isn't it? That whatever we might lose cannot compare to what God gives us. Cannot even compare. We give up so little, church, to gain so much. Do you understand that? We give up so little to gain so much. And on our journey of faithfulness to God, we got to be careful, right? We can fall into one ditch of pride and saying, well, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Look at where I'm at in life. And then you, you sadly become the hero of your own story. The reality is for all of us, we all slide into the ditch of, of faithlessness. Uh, you look at the Bible. The Bible is a story that's written to faithless people. And God's people, they are constantly falling into faithlessness and faithlessness and faithlessness, letting down God. And there's one character that emerges in the Bible that's been truly faithful from point A to point Z, and that's Jesus. He is the, the one true one that's been faithful. And so church, it's not you in your faithfulness that says, hey God, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. Because the reality is you will. The reality is your sin is going to cause you to stumble and to fall. Rather, it is God that says to you, no, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. It is in those times of, of sin that we, we stumble and yet God is faithful to us. And so church, hear me on this. What I just said right there, that doesn't nullify or make void striving to be faithful. Strive to be faithful. Strive to be faithful to the very end. But when you stumble, and you will, get back up and follow Jesus. Uh, there's an uh, old Puritan writer named John Owen. Uh, his name, he's got a subtitle to his name, The Prince of Puritans. You know you've done well in life if you've got a subtitle to your name, right? And uh, he's written so much, and he's a, a titan of the faith in, in Christ, Christianity. And he writes this line, Hey, though I stumble and though I fall, yet I will follow after him. And if a man that great can write that line, church, we're no better. We'll stumble, we'll fall, and yet we're going to follow after him. Uh, let's continue on in our verses that James is writing to us. Verses 16 and 17, we read this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, and it's coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James, he's calling us this morning to, to a response that, hey, because you've noticed the difference of, of testing and, and tempting, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived in thinking that God is somehow responsible for evil or that he tempts you with evil. Rather than that, God is good, and every good and perfect gift comes from his hands. Uh, I find this within my own heart, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that does, but when, when bad things happen in my life, I, I tend to accuse God, right? You get a flat tire on the road, you're like, well, I thought you loved me, God. Why'd you let this happen, all right? We accuse God for the bad things that happen in our life. And then yet, sadly, though, when good things happen in our life, we often kind of forget that God's responsible for those good things, that God's actually the one that's given us these seasons of joy and these seasons of flourishing in our life. 
And so you might find yourself asking, what are good and perfect gifts that God gives? Is it only things like church, God's people, God's word, God's spirit? Are those good gifts? And hear me on this. Those are, those are wonderful gifts. Those are good gifts. Those are eternal gifts that are meant for our joy and flourishing. Yes. But what James is doing here, he's giving a broader picture of the Christian life. What he's doing is he's saying everything in your life that is good is a gift from God. If you woke up this morning with breath in your lungs, it's a good gift from God. If you have good relationships with, with friends and family and spouses and your spouse, that's a good gift from God. After church, you guys are going to go out for lunch and you'll have dinner, you'll have good food and good drink. That's a good gift from God. Uh, later in the month, Ruth and I, we're going to go on vacation. That's a good gift from God. Uh, Ruth and I, we're going to open a bottle of wine on vacation. That's way too expensive for us. That is a good gift from God. All right? And here's the idea, church. The, the idea is this, that we would recognize that all of our life can become an opportunity of worship towards God. All of our lives. When good things happen to us, when, when seasons of flourishing come upon us, those become opportunities to pray and thank God for who He is and what He has done. And if we're talking about good gifts, church, we can even go a step further because of what we've read. We can even go ahead and say, yeah, even some of the trials that God has placed in my life are good gifts from His hand. You think about what Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans 8.28. He says, God makes all things work together for the good of those that are called according to His purpose. Um, it's not some things. It's not only good things. No, he makes all things work together for the good of those that are called according to his purposes. So every good and perfect gift, it comes from God. And James, he, he gives God this title, the Father of Lights. Uh, to my recollection, I think it's probably the only place in all of Scripture that God is referred to in, in this way, the Father of Lights. And this could be translated the father of heavenly lights, meaning he's, he's the God of creation. Specifically, though, he is the, the God who's created the stars and the planets in the sky. And from the sun in the sky, when it hits an object, it portrays a shadow wherever the sun may be in its track. A variation of that shadow is, is most likely due to its change in course. And James wants us to be reminded that unlike a shadow that changes, God does not change. That as God gave good gifts yesterday, rest assured, church, He will give good gifts today. That as God was faithful to you yesterday, He's going to be faithful to you today. Um, he does not change. This fleshes itself out during the week, doesn't it? We can often think, yeah, God's going to be faithful to me because I'm showing up to church. God's faithful to me because I'm reading my Bible. God's faithful to me because I'm, I'm praying. And yet, as the week goes on and you sin and you stumble, God's still faithful to you. And yet, when you sin and you stumble and you have just an absolute mess up of a week, God's still going to give you good gifts. He doesn't change. Church, you change based upon what happens in your life. God the Father does not change in His love and in His good gifts and in His faithfulness towards you. I want you to see this. Jesus gives this beautiful picture of, of God as our Father and how He gives good gifts to us. It's found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus, He says this in His Sermon on the Mount. Ask, and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Fathers, you hear that? Grandfathers, you hear that? You who have evil in your hearts and evil desires, if you know how to give good gifts to your children and grandchildren, how much more your Father who is in heaven can give good gifts? And we know this, church, right? What is the greatest gift the Father has given us? I'm going to let you answer this one. Someone whispered Jesus. Wow. Good job, church. Jesus. You speak up a little bit. Jesus is the greatest gift that God has given us. You know John 3.16, right? Some of you do. Some of you don't. You should know it. John 3.16, For God the Father so loved the world in this way that he gave. That he gave. God the Father has given us the greatest gift of the Son to us, and He's given us the Son for a purpose. And that purpose is found in verse 18. We're going to be ending our time with this. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Uh, church, we talked about the meta narrative, right, when we started, and the number 12, and how that plays a role throughout all of Scripture, right? Well, there's many meta narratives that play throughout the entire Bible, one of which is gardens. Gardens, they are incredibly significant in the Bible. You go to the Garden of Eden, where our, God first created this place for our parent, first parents, Adam and Eve, a place of absolute flourishing, a place of absolute joy, a place where they were in perfect communion with God. And yet our first parents, they chose not to do what God had desired for their life, but they chose to do what they had desired for their own life. The result of that was that they were kicked out of the garden. They were kicked out into the desert, into the wasteland, into the, into the muck and mire of life. And all of humanity is in, in constant pursuit of running away from God. And God yet, in his great loving and tender kindness towards us, he pursues us in Jesus. And Jesus, he, he comes to, to earth and he lives a, a perfect life without sin or spot. He, he goes to the cross and he sheds his blood for your sins, for your rebellion. When he's buried in a tomb, that tomb is placed in a garden. And it's really interesting. It's a few days after Jesus is buried, Mary Magdalene and a few others, they show up to Jesus' tomb to pay respects to the dead body of Jesus. And Jesus' body is not there. The, the, the tombstone has been rolled away from the tomb. The body of Jesus is missing, and everyone thinks that the body of Jesus has been stolen. And Mary Magdalene is weeping. She's weeping. And newly resurrected Jesus, he comes up to Mary, and he says, Mary, why are you weeping? Mary doesn't know that it's Jesus. And it's so subtle, church, but it's so profound. In John chapter 20, it says that Mary supposed of Jesus to be the gardener. Do you know what is happening because Jesus resurrected from the grave? Because Jesus rose from the grave, church, the restoration of the Garden of Eden is taking place. 
This place of of perfect relation with God, this place without sin, spot or wrinkle, this, this restoration is taking place this morning. And you this morning, church, you play a role in that restoration. You play a role in that, that, those first few morning springtime buds, those first few small signs of life. You play a role in those, a role in this. Paul, he says, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This morning, church, we have a mission. That mission is the restoration of the Garden of Eden here on on earth. Might I remind you of Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth. We do not go up to them. They come down to us. We have something to do here and now. And so I'm, I'm not saying this. What I'm not saying is that things are going to get easier. I don't believe them to be. In fact, I think things will get harder for Christians, and I believe as well that also as we face trials without and temptations within, things are going to be tough for us. But church, all that we might gain cannot be compared to what we would lose for the glory of Jesus and the building of his kingdom here on earth. Cannot even be compared. So this morning, Mercy Fellowship, trust Jesus. This morning, strive for faithfulness. Strive for the crown of life. In all that we do, may we be faithful to God because He is worthy of everything we are. Let me pray for us.